About 10 years ago, I was a freshman at the university. I was starting to study computer science, but at that point, I had some programming experience. I even did one small gig for, for money. But of course, I didn't know much. I just knew how to use certain tools and languages. I had built few apps with Delphi, which was a great IDE that allowed you to build GUI, graphical real applications uh, on Windows. And it was using dialect of Pascal programming language. And it had this great form builder where you just put things like buttons and images on the screen and then you, you run it and you have this executable that you can show to friends. It's kind of, kind of like Xcode. And I really loved it, but I didn't know much about programming concepts. I knew how to just put things on the screen and I knew loops and variables and all those things. And I just learned without understanding deeply what's happening, just what basically words to type to achieve what I want. I also knew a bit of basic and C, and I felt like those languages are really different, but only because C is like an older language, so it's less capable. Basic is even older, it felt, so it's it's not capable at all, just because, you know, it's like hardware. Older hardware is weak and, and kind of pathetic, and then this new hardware is better and cooler. So Delphi felt like it's a newer language, so it can do more. And certain things in C felt like the language is so weak and not capable that I have to think about so many aspects of programming. For example, in C, you have to think about memory allocation. In most cases today, when you program, you don't think about memory. You don't think about how much memory do I need to ask the computer to store this array of numbers, for example. And when you're done with that array, you just proceed, you do other things. But in C, you also have to think about, well, now I have to free this memory so it's not being used anymore uh, so that other things can use it. Within the memory, you have to think about how to get to different points in the array. It doesn't just let you to get to any arbitrary element in the array, especially if that array is of some objects that uh, are not built in, like uh, a structure that you created and then you want to make an array of that structure. You actually have to calculate how much memory do you need for, for this many things of this type. And then if you want to get to arbitrary number n, in that array, then you have to calculate, well, if I start from this point, how many bytes do I have to go through in order to end up at the place in memory where that particular element starts? So it felt like this language just couldn't do it by itself. So I have to do it. So I just have to sit here with the calculator, basically, and, and find out where in memory my stuff is. And then going from that language to Java, which was my first language in the university, and gotta tell you, not the best choice, especially when the point of those first courses is to learn algorithms and data structures and other fundamental computer science topics. Java is just in the way. I don't think it's a good choice for well, I don't think it's a good choice for anything, really, but uh, for education especially. Many universities, I think they still do it. They still use Java as the first language. And the only reason is marketing. The only reason is Java is this popular language that is still really, really used in the industry. 
not many people love it. Many companies try when they can move on from Java to other languages. Even Google, which is a huge Java user, and Android uses Java, and if you want to build apps for Android, you probably need to learn Java. Even Google now kind of moved on, and they recommend using another language, uh, which is called Kotlin, to build Android apps. Well, Java itself might be less and less popular. It's not uh, really, but uh, it, it might you know, decline in popularity. It's still being used in universities and people are still being tortured with all those extra things they have to think about when they just have to focus on concepts of computer science and programming. But the thing that Java runs on might live longer than the language itself, basically. It's called JVM, Java Virtual Machine. And we're going to talk about it a bit later, but the point I was trying to make is when I moved on to Java, it felt like it's a newer, modern language, and it finally allowed me to not to think about memory. I don't have to, th to allocate memory, I don't have to free memory, I can get to any element of the array, and the language itself will calculate those things. So it felt like a step up, like uh, we are going into the future, we're doing less, the, the language does more, and that's good. Of course, that wasn't the case. C wasn't less capable than Java because it made you calculate things and think about memory. That was the point. That is the point of C. That's why C is still being used. It's still a valid language for many, many tasks where you want that control, where you actually have to think about memory, and that's the point. So that was a wrong assumption on my part. Another wrong assumption on my part was that because that language is weak, I have to also think about types. When I declare a variable, I cannot just say x equals 7. I have to say x equals 7 and x is an integer, which was still the case with Java. Uh, so Java was a step up moving into the future, but still not all the way there. I had to now still think about types and still declare types. And when passing variables to when passing values to functions, I also have to declare what types this function take. And I thought, well, that's it. This this is programming. This You have to do it. I didn't think too much about why would you need a language like that or how could you make a language without those things. And then at some point, I learned about Python and JavaScript and Ruby, languages where you don't think about those things. You just say x equals 7. So no types really, it felt. So that's the future. That's a huge step up. It felt like I can finally not only not think about memory, but also not think about types. It's great. More than that, in C, if I say x equals 7 and x is an integer, that's it. I cannot put anything else into x. Even if I say, well, x is now a string. Nope, x is integer until the end of this program. In languages like Python and JavaScript, not only not I have to put types when I create a variable, I can change that variable to anything. I guess that's because I didn't say it's an integer, so it's kind of, it has this freedom of not really conforming to any type. So when I say x equals 7, later at any time I can say x equals true, now it's a boolean. And then I can say x equals some string, and now it's a string. Without knowing what's going on, what, what are those decisions that computer programming language designers made, it just felt like uh, a step up, just uh, an improvement in my workflow, and that's it. Of course, there are reasons behind those decisions, and languages have or don't have types 
when declaring variables. It's a decision by the designer of the language and uh, these decisions lead to different outcomes. These languages are different and they serve kind of different purposes and sometimes different audiences. And today we will try to understand what those differences mean and how languages differ in these contexts. Welcome to CodeXpands. Let's go. You have probably heard about dynamic and static languages, or dynamic and static typing. So C and Java languages are examples of languages that they call static, and Python and JavaScript, well, they call them dynamic. What does it mean? Well, it feels like it's obvious. In Java and C, I have to declare the type of a variable, and it doesn't change. It's static right? And dynamic, well, because in JavaScript, I can say x equals seven, and then x can change. X can be true, or a string, or any other type, or even an object of a class. So that's kind of dynamic, right? So it feels like this is what they're talking about. That's not really true, and that's a misconception. You have to understand a few things about how languages work behind the scenes to actually understand what those things mean. And also, saying that language is dynamic or static is a bit of um, a wrong simplification of wording. Can you, can you say that? Of words. Uh, anyway, the thing is, it's not about the language being static or dynamic. It's the typing system in that language. And the difference between static and dynamic typing is in type checking, when to check types. If you have worked with languages like C and Java, and then with languages like Python and Ruby and JavaScript, you also know a big difference between them is that those first languages compile, and those second languages interpret. Well, JavaScript can still be compiled, but let's ignore it for now. It, it can be interpreted, and it started as an interpreted language. So you don't need a compiler, you don't need a special app that creates executable files to run a JavaScript or a Python program. And this is a huge difference, actually. With C, you can write a program, and then you run this special compiler app, and then you have an executable .exe file if you're doing it on Windows. And now you can get rid of the source code. You don't need it anymore. You don't need the compiler anymore. This executable file is your program that's going to run on, in theory, any Windows machine at this point. You can give it to friends, you can sell it, you can distribute it. It doesn't have any source code in it. Your original source code is, is lost. It's in this special machine code format. It's not really machine code for the processor, it's more like machine code for the operating system for this platform where you built it. It's really hard to read. A normal person wouldn't understand that code. If, if they open the file in the text editor, they'll see lots and lots of gibberish. Uh, but there are ways to get back from there to a little bit more readable format like assembly code, which still isn't C, but it's sort of human readable. You can try to understand it. And this is how reverse engineering works. You can get any executable file, you can convert it to assembly code, and it's really, really hard. But you can get, if you spend enough time, you can get to change something, maybe crack that program, make it not require payment or extend the, the time it works. Like a trial program, you can extend the time if the original programmer wasn't really tricky about hiding it. So this is how pirates crack programs. They disassemble executables because they don't have access to the source code 
So compiled languages have this special time when they convert source code into executable file. And that time, well, it doesn't really matter how long that is. I mean, for the programmer, of course, we want uh, we want it to be quick, but for the end user, it doesn't matter. The compiling might have taken hours and hours, but in the end, the executable might be still really fast. So because of this, compilers usually do a lot of work they check a lot of things, they uh, make sure everything makes sense. And one of the things they usually do is they check types. This is why it makes sense for a language like C to have types. It's quite expensive to check if all the types align, if at every point in time, all the types that you built that you put into your program, they make sense everywhere. Like you pass a number and then you add this number with another number. The compiler can check if that's actually a number being added because, well, you cannot add a number to a string or a number to a boolean. That doesn't make sense. But because you have put all the types in, because you said this is a number and this is a number and this is a boolean, when the program is being compiled, the compiler can check if all operations make sense in terms of values and types being used. And we say C has static type checking because types are being checked statically. And statically in programming means it means many things like a lot of computer science terms. Uh, computer science is generally bad with names, so we reuse a lot of names. We make this confusing thing even more confusing. For some people, static might only mean this object-oriented thing where, where you declare your variables and methods in a class, static. But in this context, static is another big area, another big meaning, static code analysis. There are special programs that can analyze your source code and maybe find silly mistakes, find potential bugs, or find something that it's possible to find without really running the code. It's possible to tell something about the code and maybe give the programmer some advice or tips by just looking at the source code. And because this type of checking is done without running the program, only looking at the source code, just this basically text file, this is called static analysis because you're statically looking at text. You're not running the thing. It's like you can test the car. You can test lots of things in a car by just looking at it without actually driving it. You might say, this is my static analysis of the car. Static type checking refers to this kind of checking. It's checking the types, checking if all the types make sense by statically looking at the source code without running the code. This is what compilers do, because at this point they don't have a thing to run. They don't yet have a program to run. So that's what static type checking is. And when they say static typing or static languages, they just mean languages where type checking is static. This is why most compiled languages are statically typed. They have the special time. They can allow this rich and expensive procedure of static type checking to be completed. And therefore, why not? Gives you certain guarantees about your code. It helps you usually. But of course, you have to think about types. You have to think more and write more. Languages like Python or Ruby, JavaScript, in certain cases, they don't have this compile time because they are not compiled languages. In order to run code written in Python, for example, you need both the source code of that program and the Python interpreter, a special app that reads this source code line by line and executes just from top to bottom. This is why, by default, you cannot just make an executable file out of Python program. These languages sometimes are called scripting languages. The file that you write is kind of a script for the interpreter, just like 
like a script for an actor to read out, to play. The interpreter plays the script, and in order to distribute this program, to give this software to someone else, you have to give them both the source code and the interpreter. This feels like a good idea in general, because things like C, when you compile a program into an executable, you now have to think about where this executable can run. If you have built this on Windows, it will, in theory, run on all Windows machines, but it might not, but it should. But it won't run on Mac or Linux. You have to think about those. You have to build those special versions. If there are more platforms you target, then you have to build lots and lots of different versions of your program. And they might differ not only in the compilation parameters and flags, but in source code as well. You might need to write a bit of different things in your program, depending on how complicated your program is. And that's a lot of work. Now, what if you just write this code once and then different compilers in different systems just do their the job and they run the same code? They take care of the differences between platforms. That would be great if that were true. It it's not. First of all, in theory, all those platforms should have all those interpreters built in. They, they should come with the interpreters. Now, some of them do. Linux usually comes with some version of Python. macOS comes with Python and Ruby interpreters, but they are usually old, old versions. macOS still comes with Python 2.7, I think, and some older version of Ruby. So for any realistic app that you want to run, you will probably need to install a new version of an interpreter. And uh, because the older version is still being used by some system, system utilities and, and some other software in the system, you will have to think about how to keep both, or maybe even more. You might download some software that needs a particular version of Ruby, for example. So you might now think about how to store different versions of the interpreter and serve them to different environments. And now you you need another software that will just manage those versions. You need a software manager manager. And then, yeah, it's a mess. And uh, at this point, you think, well, if I had a binary for each app, I wouldn't think about interpreters and manage interpreters, I would just run that binary, so that would be great. This is a problem in general. How do you distribute your software that it works on different platforms? Because that's only part of the problem, of course. Different operating systems provide different ways to interact with the hardware, and you have to think about those differences when you create code, be it for a compiled language or interpreted language. And this is where JVM comes in. I said that JVM is going to be popular even if Java will become less popular, and that's because JVM is one of the solutions to solve this problem problem of multi-platform and incompatibility and compilers and interpreters and all that. So JVM is interesting. They felt this is a problem back in the 90s and they decided to solve it in this interesting way. So Java, instead of being compiled into executable like C or instead of being just interpreted by an interpreter like Python would do, it's somewhere in between. Java programs compile, but not into executable files, into special bytecode files. Those files are still compiled, so the original Java source code is still lost in this process. But this new format isn't machine code that you can just run on target operating system. You need another piece of software to run it. So it's kind of like an interpreter, but it doesn't interpret your source code. It interprets your bytecode, and it doesn't really interpret in the same sense. It just runs it. And that software is Java Virtual Machine, and it's what it says. It's a virtual machine. It's like a smaller virtual computer that runs on top of your computer. It has its own operating 
JSON. You don't see it really, but it's there. It even has in those bytecode files that you have compiled from Java source code can run only on those JVM machines. The point of this is that the side of this machine that's facing the developer is always the same, be it on Windows, on Mac, on Linux, or any mobile phone or anything. When you build software, you only think about this virtual machine. So you don't think about different platforms anymore because this conversion between different platforms is happening inside the virtual machine. This is your target now, JVM. Now, it's not that great. Um, in theory, that's how it works. So you build your app for the JVM and now it suddenly runs everywhere. In reality, there are still so many differences that you cannot just do it in all cases. And small apps will work everywhere. But if you're doing some complex things with networking and, and graphics and even just not standard graphics for your app, will require you to still think about different platforms. And it's a commercial thing. It's It belongs to a company. They provide licenses. You have to pay for certain things. So JVM is great. It's really powerful. It solves a real problem, but it's not the best solution we can come up with. And it's not a new idea. That's the, the idea behind JVM, behind, behind these virtual machines for programming were created back in the 70s, I think. Because JVM is quite popular and really powerful, there are other languages that target JVM. So you can write code not only in Java to run on the Java virtual machine, but in languages like Kotlin and Clojure and Scala. For example, Clojure, even though it targets the same Java virtual machine, has dynamic type checking. So languages like Python and Ruby without the compiler, the only time there is a possibility to check types is when the program runs, because when it runs, the interpreter reads all the code, it executes all the code, and it might see that something is wrong, but that's going to be the last possible moment. This line of code is wrong, There's you're trying to add a number to a boolean, it doesn't make sense. But there's no other way to see that, only when this code runs, because this is the only time this code is actually being in some way processed. Since there is no compile time, interpreted languages have to be dynamically typed languages, meaning type checking is happening dynamically when the code runs. So this is what they refer to when they say languages are dynamically typed. The type checking is happening at runtime. Back to the car analogy, this is how I test my car by driving it. I don't check it when it just stays there. I can only drive it, and this is the only time when I can find problems with it. Now, that sounds dangerous, and it's a bit more dangerous, yes. Dynamically typed languages might usually have more problems related to typing because those problems arise at the last possible moment when it's too late, basically. If I say number plus boolean in Python, the program will run, but only if and when that line of code is executed, I will see an error a type error. But if for some reason that line of code is never executed, maybe it was inside an if condition and that never evaluated to true so that that line never executed, then the program seems fine. That error never occurred. It feels like there were no typing errors in my program. If I write the same line of code in C or Java, the program won't even compile. It doesn't matter if that line of code will or will not execute. The compiler statically checked all the lines of code and it saw that in this case, well, you're trying to add a number to a boolean that does make sense. It's a type error. Fix it before compiling again. So that's the difference between dynamic and static typing. It's about when to check for type errors. Types exist in a language, you want it or not, even though in 
JavaScript and Python and Ruby, you don't put types when you declare variables and you don't put types in arguments in the functions. Types exist. And that example, when you add a number to a Boolean and Python says type error, that proves that inside the language, there is a notion of types. It's just less transparent. And in different communities, there are different attitudes towards this idea of having types. In statically typed languages, especially in languages where the system is really, really strong and, and really demanding about how you manage types, the general feeling is, well, yes, it's more work on your part. You have to think about this and you have to type types and you have to put those words in your program. But it's worth it because it provides you these guarantees. It avoids silly mistakes and bugs. And this type checking is generally a good idea. In dynamically typed languages, in communities of those languages, it depends on the language. Now, JavaScript, there's usually no big debate about typing. People generally are aware that the typing system in JavaScript is not really good, and it often leads to mistakes. And if you just open your console in the browser and navigate to even popular sites, sometimes you'll see a lot of errors that JavaScript code generates. There could be a million different reasons for those errors. After all, we run megabytes and megabytes of JavaScript every minute on the web. But often those mistakes are about types. You might see something like undefined is not a function. Somewhere, somehow, there was a nothing value, an undefined value, and it was treated as a function. Someone tried to run something that they get from somewhere else, and because they couldn't guarantee it's a function, they couldn't guarantee the type, and the function is just another type, along with numbers and booleans and strings. For small programs, it's usually less of a problem, but for large systems, people prefer to have some sort of typing, some sort of at least weak guarantees. And there are ways to add types to JavaScript. There are kind of extensions of JavaScript. One of them is called Flow. And there are actually languages that are supersets of JavaScript. So you can still write JavaScript. And one of those languages is called TypeScript, which kind of hints towards what it's about. It's about types. So in TypeScript, you can just write regular JavaScript and it will work. But at any point, you can add types to variable declarations, for example. And this language is compiled into JavaScript and then interpreted or compiled for actual runtime. So there is this time where types can be checked. In other languages, it's not that common to even desire types. For example, in Clojure, which was that language that targets JVM. So it's being compiled into bytecode, into JVM code. But even though there is this compile time, the language deliberately avoids types. It's a dynamically typed language, even though it's compiled. And uh, the community is, in general, in favor of this decision. This is often one of the reasons people go towards Clojure, because it's dynamically typed language. And it's less of a problem with Clojure because in Clojure, you don't have variables. You don't have any mutable data at all. All the data you put in is constant. This means there will never be this mismatch of types that happened because the variable changed and the value is changed. Like in JavaScript or Python, a variable can change its value, but it can change its type as well. So that might be unexpected in some code. In Clojure, they never change. So that's like half of your problems go away. And some statically typed languages, they usually have different degrees of how much work do you actually have to do in order to take advantage of those. And some languages try to infer types 
from context if it's possible for example in swift you have static type checking so you have to put all the types in but when it's possible swift will deduce it will infer type from context if it's absolutely sure for example when you are creating a variable you can say x is a string and its value is this but if you don't say it's a string but just give it a value which is a string swift will be okay with that it will say yeah i understand this is a string you don't have to say it but we all know it's a string in this case it didn't become dynamically typed you just didn't put the words in your program but the language assumes they are there and some languages are somewhat weird c sharp for example actually allows you to declare different variables as dynamically checked or statically checked it's a compiled language but the compiler can ignore some variables at compile time in any kinds of divisions into different categories there are always outliers and there are always combinations there the people are always trying to find a combination of two worlds because both approaches have their benefits and they have their cons and they have even this religious following as you have to have some people feel really really strongly about typing and this is a good segue to another part of our discussion some people feel strongly about typing so we have to talk about strong and weak typing which if you've heard about you might have thought it's the same so strong is static and weak is dynamic but it's a different concept strong versus weak typing it's about how serious are you about types whenever that checking happens so in javascript you can actually add a number to a boolean and you can actually add basically anything to anything it won't complain it won't raise a type error it can even add like an empty object to an empty array and the result will be number zero does it make sense well it doesn't but the case for javascript is that the point of javascript was it should run and it should never fail even when code doesn't make sense it should do something it should just you know assume the position never fail that's a good point because well this language runs on browsers everywhere and you don't want this language to be kind of picky about what's happening for us programmers it's not the best thing in the world we don't love it it's unexpected it doesn't make sense uh, it's hard to predict but for the end user i guess it's a plus because at least the program doesn't crash I can argue it's still bad because now you have this undefined behavior and the program is wrong so it, it it's not doing what you want but because it didn't crash you might assume everything is okay while there are deep deep problems in the program so i don't think it's a good idea for anything but that that's the case for javascript that's the argument it should run as much as possible because it should run as much as possible it can ignore many many type errors so it doesn't see those as type errors and you can add numbers to strings and sometimes it makes perfect sense for example if i want to print some text and then a number i just put that text and they say plus a number and it prints as if that number was a string it converted on the fly it didn't ask me about anything and i didn't have to think about converting integers into strings so sometimes it's really handy and it just makes you do less but because it does so many things automatically with those types at some point you will face something unexpected maybe when you did this plus between a number and a string you actually wanted the string to be converted into a number maybe you have a digit inside your string and you wanted that digit to become a number and then do the mathematical addition between two numbers but that's probably not what javascript is going to do all of this tells you that javascript is a weakly typed language 
it's relaxed about types. Its attitude towards types is weak. It doesn't have any strong convictions about types. Now, Python is different. In most of those cases, Python will crash and raise an error. If you try to add a number to a string, it will say type error. You cannot do it. It doesn't make sense. This is why dynamic type checking is less of an issue in Python, because Python is strongly typed. It has strong convictions about typing, and it's really serious about how you manage types, how you combine types. So both of them, JavaScript and Python, are dynamically typed. Types are checked during runtime. But when that checking happens, Python is really strict about it. So Python is dynamically and strongly typed. And JavaScript is really relaxed about it. So JavaScript is dynamically and weakly typed. And while static versus dynamic is a binary division, a language is either static or dynamic. Well, in C-sharp, you might have different lines of code being checked at different times, but each line is either static or dynamic. It's either checked at compile time before running or at runtime. In contrast to that, weak versus strong is a spectrum. A language could be weaker or stronger. So if you imagine those aspects of typing as X and Y axis, let's say X is dynamic on the left, static on the right, and you have a vertical Y axis where weak is at the bottom and strong is at the top, JavaScript will be in the left bottom corner. It's dynamic and it's really, really weak. Python will be in the left top corner. It's still on the dynamic side, but it's quite serious about types. It's strongly typed. And languages like C and Java will be in the top right corner. They are statically typed, types checked before running, and this checking is really, really serious. So there you go. That's the difference between weak and strong typing and dynamic and static typing. This was a bit of a simplification because you shouldn't connect compilation with static typing and closure is an example of compiled language without static typing so it's not just about compilation it usually is because that's a, that's a good point at which you can check for types but to be more precise static typing is not about the time of typing but about how constrained the programming language implementation is about declared types or undeclared types but this might lead you into much more deeper discussion about programming languages and engineering or if you go the other way, you, you might think about typing as type theory in math, which is a relatively new area in math that was developed in the 20th century. It's an area of math where they think about types and they think about relationships between types and how they can be combined and what laws govern their behavior. And they think about numbers and functions and strings and booleans and whatnot. And type theory is one of the foundational parts of math. It can be a foundation for other parts. You can derive other areas of mathematics from, from type theory. But there's even more fundamental part of math that's called category theory. But that's a huge topic for another discussion. All right, that's it. Cheers.